way back when. Some of you were just children when this occurred. Back in the time in American history when there was a group, a movement. Let me say that again. There was a movement uh, of which a particular group seemed to capture their identity, and that was a group called the hippies. Some of you were old then. Some of you were not around then. I won't go into a whole lot about them, except there was this one guy, this comedian. Now, back in those days, uh, I was a child growing into uh, teenage years, and uh, in my time running from God and running from everything that I knew was right, uh, there was a particular comedian who was tied to that age Uh, who was, as it turns out, quite a reprobate as it relates to morals and his way of thinking and all of that. But uh, there was one comedy bit that he did that captured me, and I remember a part of I'm not going to tell you what the guy's name was, and I do not recommend that you go uh, look up a lot of his stuff because it's just wrong. But he did a bit that really was funny, and he was referred to himself as the hippy-dippy weatherman. And the hippy-dippy weatherman, as it turns out, this kind of part that he played, was um, representative of the movement, very laid back, very free-thinking, and not necessarily the sharpest knife in the drawer. And uh, so he plays out this weather forecaster uh, bit that he did, and one of the things that he would say, because, you know, science was way beyond what he really wanted to get into, and so he said things like this, yeah, the forecast for tonight is uh, widespread darkness, uh, and probably the plan is that in the morning the forecast will be widely scattered light. Now, I want to stop there because that's about the extent of the contribution he made to American society. But I do want to borrow his line and see if we can apply it into the church today. The forecast for the church in America today needs to be widely scattered light. We are in this series where we're going through the book of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. It's towards the back of your Bible. Matter of fact, go to Revelation, turn left, probably 50 pages or less, and you'll find this little letter that John the Apostle wrote to a group of churches uh, in what is probably in what is currently Ephesus, or what we came to know as Ephesus. Now, In this, John, who was an apostle, he was one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, In this series, we're taking what he has to say to the church in 1 John, and I'm trying to take us back from time to time into the gospel of John to see where John might have gotten some of the truth that he seems to have built his life around. And so we're going to do that again today. And 1 John will be in chapter 1, and the Gospel of John will be in chapter 8. So I'll go ahead and give you a little bit of time to get there and see what you can find there. Now, here's, here's what he says to this church. I'm going to try to pull the whole letter of 1 John into this one statement. John says to them, the fact that you claim Christ as your Savior dictates then that you be connected on a vertical plane with him and a horizontal plane with his people. Now, we have in our 
vision statement. It's listed on your bulletin there. You probably can find it on the front. One of the things that we say, a matter of fact, we begin this way by referring to ourselves as a connected community. And I've chosen this particular book for us to study through because John emphasizes and reemphasizes and drills down for us what it means to be a connected community. We've seen already that he has various purpose statements. As he writes this little letter, it only uh, takes up a handful of pages in our Bibles, but he, he writes on four different points of purpose. The one we looked at already and we took a couple of weeks to see how he supports it in various places. But the statement is over in chapter 5 verse 13. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. And John says with that that one of the critical elements of of Christianity and living a life that is connected is that you are connected between you and God on the vertical plane of life. Everybody's not connected there. We're not automatically born into a relationship with God. It only is possible through Jesus Christ. And that's the point that he's going to give us today as we look at now a second point of purpose. It's actually the first one that he lists in his little book. So in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, as he begins, that I'm writing to you from experience. What I'm telling you is something that I have lived. He says it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's referring to Jesus Christ himself. As verse 2 picks up, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard. All that he's talked about there in verse 2. He says, we proclaim also to you. And here's the purpose statement. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And here's a second purpose statement in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He goes on in verse 5, and I'm going to come back to verse 5 and following in just a few moments, but let's go ahead and read it. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I'm going to stop reading there. We'll come back and fill in a few things tied to that. Here's the point that we get. As John opens up his letter, the first point of purpose, he says, I write this thing so that, he says, verse, uh, where is that verse? Well, I should have studied this, right? (laughs) Verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's a striking piece of a sentence. Here's the next part of it. That's equally striking to me. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I want us to build what we do today around those two statements. And then pull in verses 5, 6, and 7 to illustrate a little bit of what he says. Verse 3, the first part. That which we have seen in her we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Do you realize that it is possible to be a Christian 
and still be out of fellowship with other Christians. Now, that's not a huge statement for us because the reality is many churches, that's the norm. In so many churches, we see the reality of people, of Christian people, church members together who just absolutely refuse to get along with one another. It is possible to be saved and yet to be out of focus with other Christians or out of fellowship with other Christians. Now, let me clarify. John is saying it's possible. Well, okay, now let me just stop there. Because you may look at that and say, he didn't say anything like that. Here's the deal. The fact that he starts off by saying, I'm writing this letter, the very first point of of purpose here, the fact that he starts there and says, I'm writing to you so that we can have fellowship together. The reality is that that church or those group of churches that he's writing to were not in proper fellowship with one another. There was this insurgency, if you will, this group of false teachers who were coming in and they were beginning to hack away at the foundations of who Jesus Christ was. And it was threatening, not only had threatened and begun to destroy their fellowship, it was beginning to destroy and shake the faith of many of those people that John had led to Christ. And so he writes to say, we're out of fellowship. We have to get this right. Now I'm back to where I said, for us, or what I started to say, for us, it's not hard for us to look at and say, well, sure, there are people all over churches, all over the place today who are Christians and they claim to be followers of Christ and yet they refuse to get along with one another. It is possible to be saved and out of fellowship with other Christians. But John is quick to tell us while that is possible, it is never acceptable. Think about this as a point of reference for you. This is basketball playoff season for high school students. It's almost over. We have about a week left in the state of Texas, and then it's going to be all said and done. But I want us to consider, based on watching some basketball teams together, and it doesn't have to be basketball, it just happens to be basketball season. What happens with a team that falls into this state of being out of fellowship with one another? I've watched over the last week or so some playoff basketball. Now, our Lady Raiders went on a good deep run into the playoffs, and the Coons boys are going to state this week to play uh, for all the marbles, so to speak. And I've watched as that particular team, the boys from Coons, systematically dismantled other teams. I like that because I happen to be supportive of that team. But one of the reasons I like high school basketball so much is my middle son, Colin, most of you know who he is and he's been here before, but uh, he was a basketball player and played varsity from his sophomore year all the way through. And, uh, and his teams regularly made deep runs into the playoffs, but they never reached the point where they got to play for all of the marbles. And so I've been on the side of the fans who sit there watching their team get dismantled by somebody else. And it, and it hurts me to watch some of these high school kids as they have just poured themselves into this sport, some of them for years of their lives, and come up on the short end of a game and watch what it does to them. I was watching yesterday. We went to Lufkin to watch the boys play. 
And as Koontz jumped into an early lead and began to demoralize the other team, I watched the other team as they began to turn on one another. And, you know, there's always that group of guys uh, on a team like that uh, who are gifted athletes. I mean, you know, they can just think about playing a sport and be excellent at it. I'm like that. You can tell by looking at me I'm that kind of guy. But there are other guys on the team because, you know, that's the rare oddity, that guy who's exceptional just by thinking about it. There are other guys on the team who have to work at it. It's interesting to me to watch a team as they begin to get behind. If they're not coached well, that team will begin to turn on one another. And I watched that happen yesterday. In the first three or four minutes of that game, as the Koontz boys took it over and essentially won the game in the first few minutes, as far as in between the ears, they did. And I watched the athletes on the other team, and they had a pretty good team. But I watched as the athletes began to watch some of their not-so-talented supporting cast make mistakes, and the looks on their faces began to turn to scowls, and they began to shoot looks at them that were, you know, well, let's just say they're not very Jesus-like. And then it became less the look and more the verbalization, that, that basic point of reference that says, come on, are you kidding me? You're going to do that pass at this time? What are you doing shooting the ball? You don't belong. Now, they didn't say those things, but you could tell that's what they were thinking. And their teammates knew that's what they were thinking too. And then the athletes started messing up. And they began to do that to one another. And before it was all said and done, those guys lost the game in here first because they lost their ability to play together as a team. Now, I I go through all of that in here because that's just a metaphor for what happens inside churches. John's writing a letter to a church or a series of churches here who have gotten it wrong internally. And we all know how that happens and we've seen that, how people within an organization like a church begin to turn on one another. And hear me carefully now, when the enemy begins to put pressure internally, that group begins to turn on one another and darkness prevails. We've seen that as Baptists in our denomination over the last 15, 20 years or more, we've watched what was once the most prolific mission-sending organization on the planet as it turned on one another. The enemy steps in and one of those key elements of who we were as a people. He begins to exploit that and to separate us. And before it's all said and done, this group of people known as Baptists are so busy fighting one another that they have no real voice on the mission field. It's not that they're not out there. It's not that it's not happening. It's just that what was once so promising has been sacrificed in the name of we don't agree with each other. Let me tell you, I heard this a while back. It's a dangerous way to think, but there's truth in it. Just because somebody is able to have an opinion doesn't make them qualified to act on it. How, you, how would you grade 
the fellowship of Crestwood Baptist Church. Because when it's all said and done, we don't have any control over any church around the corner or down the street or in some other town. The only church that we have any influence on or any say about is the fellowship of the one in which we find ourselves. How would you grade the fellowship of our church? And maybe this is a good time for me to underscore this little truth, okay? We all have little segments of our church family that we would grade high. We would say, yeah, this group, we're great. My group is great. I'm talking about the group as a whole. Where do you find us in the mix? And so John writes this letter into this church of the first century, but the message of it stretches down through the centuries to us. And we find ourselves sitting here with his question or his statement firmly within our laps. And what do we do with it? I write this so that you may have fellowship with us. Here's a good truth for us. In the face of a world and a Christian world at that, that is marked by division, unity is a mark of vibrant Christianity. And as God's people, if we claim the name of Jesus Christ, unity must be one of those things towards which we always push. And so we come to talk about being connected. And John is going to lay out for us in these few verses that reality that says if we're not right on a vertical plane, if I'm not connected with Christ in the right way, there's no way that I'm going to get the horizontal plane right. And that's his point. That's what he writes into. And the reality then for us is to say, okay, so where do we address that? If we find in our circles that however you grade your church or your little part of the church, how do we come to some kind of a common ground? This is the part that intrigues me about this. John is not willing to meet anybody halfway on this. Now, the American way of doing things is we would probably come into it and we would say, okay, well, we're on different points here, and here's my position. And the other person says, well, here's my position. One person says, you hurt me, and the other one says, you deserved it, or whatever it happens to be, and so our fellowship is broken. And you go to the preacher's office and you sit down and the preacher says, okay, let's find a place in the middle that we can meet, that we can build from. John doesn't do that. John takes them to a critical point of doctrine. I'm taken with what John does here because John takes them right into the lap of Jesus himself. Indeed, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Think for just a moment about what it took for John to get to that admission. Here's John, the fisherman. Do you think that John was born believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? That's how he refers to him here, the last few words of verse 3, and with his son, Jesus Christ. At what point in John's life did it dawn on him that Jesus was in fact the Christ? Jesus, by the way, his last name is not Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus, the Messiah. But John does more than that here. He links him to and he says he is the very son of God. At what point in John's development did he get to that realization? That's a good question because I got the same question for you. At what point in your development did you reach a point where you feel like and you believe that Jesus is in fact the son of God, the Messiah? 
If you're not here today, if you're, if you're not here today, you're probably not hearing this. But if you are here today and you are hearing this and you haven't reached that point where you believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, then I would say to you, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And we'd love to have that discussion with you to help walk you through some of the things that Scripture says and who Jesus Christ is and the life that he offers to you. Most of us in here have probably reached the point that we say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. How did you get to that point? Walk with me for just a second with John and his background. Here's John, the fisherman. Maybe as young as a teenager, certainly not very old in his life. And in those early days... The word begins to trickle around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee that there's this guy named Jesus, and he says stuff that's out of the ordinary. And he does stuff. He's doing these miracles, and it's causing people to experience life like they've never seen before. And here's John as he's out in a boat with his fishing buddies, brother, and some others. And this same Jesus that he's heard about walks along the shore. Before it's all said and done that day, this same Jesus says to him, Hey, man, come with me. Follow me. Do you think John at that point had a full understanding of who Jesus was? I would argue that if we go to the book of Mark and walk our way through the book of Mark, what we find is Mark laying out his gospel, and he shows us that those disciples were, were in this long Uh, development, this road of coming to understand who Jesus really was. Many times or several times in Mark's gospel, we hear these disciples saying, who is this guy that even the winds and the seas obey him? They're, They're not too sure about this Jesus and who he is, but they follow him. And finally, at some point in the process, as John is following Jesus and he's hearing what he has to say, And he sees him performing these miracles. No longer now is it secondhand, but it's firsthand experience. And he's walking with him. Somewhere in the process, it's like a light switch comes on. And John is no longer the fisherman. Now John is the apostle. Now John is the disciple. Now John becomes that one who years later would write a little letter to a group of churches who were struggling with who this Jesus was. And he says in that first chapter of 1 John, I'm writing to you what I know to be true. I walked it. I talked it. I touched him. I heard him. I saw him. What is your faith based on today? Are you basing your faith in Jesus Christ on personal experience with him? Or is it just something that somebody told you that sounds good? Here's why I think that's important. Because if we come to the point, as John did, where we can say, I realize that this Jesus is in fact the Son of God. He is God himself in the flesh, crucified for my sin so that I might be connected with God, a a personal relationship with God. He is, in fact, what verse 3 says. He is the Christ, the Son of the Father. If you believe that, then you are forced into a radical reorientation of your life. Let me make sure we get that because this is the part that as Christians we... Well, it's easy in church to say okay, but it's another thing when we start dealing with people that are hard to deal with. And it's another thing when we get out into our own little personal private lives. 
If you can acknowledge that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, it forces you into a radical reorientation of your life. That's one of the reasons that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and follow me, he must. Now, what does it say? He must give 10% on Sundays. Is that what it says? If anyone would come after me and follow me, he will give me one week on the mission field every other year. Is that what he says? Hello? Okay, just see if you're still there. If anyone will come after me, let him, what does he say? Deny himself. Take up his cross. That, in other words, means to deny yourself. It's another way of saying, you want to follow him? you got to die. You have to die to yourself. So if you admit that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, he is the Christ, that forces you to make a decision about who will run your life. If he's divine and I know it, in other words, I cannot live in a way that he would not live. How's that sound to you? That ought to sound a little scary to us. One of the things that I think is true, increasingly so in American society, is we have gone to seed on personal rights. It is my right To be wrong if I want to be wrong. Yes, it is. I will fight for you to have that right. But I'll also fight for you to have to live with the consequences of living outside of the truth. Just because we believe it doesn't make it right. Just because we believe it passionately does not make it right. If he is in fact the son of God, then we have to reorient our lives in a radical way. Way. This is verse 5, okay? Back to verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John picks up this biblical motif of light. I don't have time to walk all the way through it with us, but let me just go to the beginning part of where we see this in Scripture. And it's all through the Old Testament. If you go to the account of creation, Genesis chapter 1, at what point does light show up? Okay, there's some more homework for you. Go check out the creation story. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Now, I know this is going to sound a little bit jacked up theologically. Bear with me. When God shows up, there's light. Now, here's the jacked up theological part of that, okay? God always shows up. I know I've heard those comments from you. I know that. I really do know that. But the reality is we live our lives many times as if God is not there. It's not that he's not there. It's just that we live as if he's not there. And those are dark days, right? I can take you to a living room of a house out in slow death of Texas where this world got as dark for me as I ever dreamed it could get. And when God showed up, light. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Psalm 119, 105. Our Awana kids ought to know this verse. Anybody know it? Psalm 119, 105. 
And your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see how God equates light with his presence and his protection and his guidance for us. This world can be an extremely dark place. But where God is, there's light. And so John says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And with that in mind, I guess I could also throw in that passage over in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus, it's Jesus' coming out party at the local synagogue. As he begins his mission, I'll go ahead and read this for you. You don't have time to turn there. As he begins his mission, Jesus shows up at the synagogue and here's what he says. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's what Jesus said. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And John picks up that and he pulls it in and he speaks to a church that is marked by disfellowship with one another and he talks about light and walking in the light. He might have gotten that, John, from that passage we find in John chapter 8, and I don't have time to look at it or deal with it really. But in John chapter 8, at the festival of booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus steps into one of those festival occasions that involved the lighting of lamps at night in the court of women at the temple and then dancing by torchlight. I just like to throw that in there because it just sends Baptists over the edge. As part of this key celebration of the Jewish people, they go into the court of women at the temple. It's the place where everybody could come, or just about everybody, and they have these golden lampstands, and they light these candles, these torches, and they dance to the glory of God because it's the fall harvest, and God has provided for them again, and it's an occasion for celebration, and it's into that exact setting that Jesus steps up in John chapter 8 verse 12 and says, I am the light of the world. And he gives new meaning to that age-old religion of Judaism. Years later, one of his disciples, the one by the name of John, who witnessed that declaration, would say to a group of Christian people who were not in fellowship with each other. God is light. And in him is no darkness. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. With relationship comes a responsibility to fellowship. Why is it that so many churches of our day are marked by darkness? Why is it that so many Christian people of our day are marked with a desire to bring darkness 
into a life that is described as light, a relationship with Christ. I have a friend. Here's my answer to that, by the way. It's because I think as Christians, most of us, many of us, maybe all of us, really prefer a little bit of dark with our light. I have a friend, used to go backpacking with him. Most of the time when we went, we would take a bunch of teenagers with us, teenage boys, uh, junior high and high school. If you haven't gone backpacking with a bunch of junior high boys, you just haven't lived. And there's a universal thing that happens. And I don't know if teenage boys get together and plan this or if it's just part of their brain being sucked out when they're in the sixth grade. I don't know what it is, but... Uh, every trip, every kid we ever went on, th- my friend's name is Lance. He's a huge guy. You know, he's, he was, he's just a big old man's man kind of guy, you know. And so we're out there, and, and invariably what would happen, get to be nighttime, and these kids would start getting their flashlights out, and they're doing all kinds of stuff with their flashlights, right? And invariably, they would go to talk to Lance, and when they go to talk to him, they take that light and they shine it right in his face. Oh, it sent him over the edge. I thought more than once that we were going to have to bury a kid out in the wilderness somewhere. (laughs) Get that light out of my face. That, That seems to be how many Christian people handle Jesus Christ in their lives. We don't want the full light. We don't want it in our face that causes us to see only the light. We just want a little bit of light. I just want enough so that I can feel good about the things in the world that are out of my control. But I don't want enough light that I see where I'm not letting him be God. I want just enough light to feel comfort when I run into illnesses, whether in my family or those of people that I care about. I I want enough light to know that God's in charge of that stuff and that he's the great physician. But I don't want enough for him to start dictating how I'm supposed to live my life. I think we like a little bit of darkness with our light. Which might explain why so many churches are marked by fellowship that's being destroyed and destroying people. If I get this right... What John is saying to that set of people. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Boy, that, that, man, that's a little bit offensive, isn't it? Well, if you find it a little bit offensive, it might just be that you like a little bit of dark with your light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... You hear this? That's the, that's the vertical, okay? If we're connected with him and we're walking as he would have us to walk, then that's connection. But he goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so here's the deal. If you want to test just how well connected you are with Christ, test how well connected you are with his people, all of his people. So the forecast, or at least I hope the forecast is, as we leave this building and walk into a very dark world, 
widely scattered light this week. Let's pray. These are tough words. I find it interesting that John cuts straight to the chase at the very beginning of his little letter. Apparently, fellowship with each other is really important in God's kingdom. And so here's my invitation to you today. First of all, if you don't know Christ, if you don't have that relationship secure, then that's where you need to get connected today. I highly encourage you, implore you, beg you to give your life to Jesus Christ and walk in the light. You cannot even begin to imagine the life that he brings to you. Many of us have done that. And yet we've allowed darkness to kind of creep in around the edges and we've set the pattern for our lives and we've set the rules for our lives and uh, we've even made mistakes that leave us living in the dark. Some of those mistakes have caused us to damage other people or allow ourselves to be damaged by other people. Some of the very people that Christ would say he puts you together so that you could help each other be better. So what do you do with all of that? The connectivity of your life on both vertical and horizontal planes demands a response. And so, Father, we ask that you would now, through your spirit, move in the hearts of your people. May this be a day of renewal for us. May it be a day where relationships are set right, where people who have been holding things against others would see the need strongly enough to step across the pain and get it right. Forgiveness, release, all of those things that fellowship would be built again. We pray these things in Jesus' name and we ask you to have your way with us now. Amen.